Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vicini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Adam Spinella is in the building. We're going to dive deep into the Celtics forcing a Game 7 with the Miami Heat after being down 3-0 earlier in the playoffs. Adam Spinella is going to be very happy to talk about that. Then we're going to talk a little bit about the G League Ignite guys and just the direction of that program over the course of the last three years now that we have a pretty good feel of where these guys have a chance to be taken. Finally, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the early entry NBA draft decisions that will be forthcoming over the course of the next four to five days. Really exciting group of players featuring guys like Andre Jackson. Uh, I think he's the highest ranked guy I have. Julian Phillips is in this mix. Terrence Shannon's in this mix. We'll talk about all of them in a little bit more detail and where we kind of think that those guys uh, may or may not fall. Adam, how's it going, man? Hey, Sam. Happy succession finale Sunday. Uh, Memorial true. Memorial Day weekend here in the States. So nice to have uh, a little bit more time tonight to just be able to relax and not go to work tomorrow. Dive into some tape. Uh, fired up for the Celtics right now. It's been a fun last maybe 72 hours seeing the wave of momentum that they are riding into a really, really fun game seven. And just as a fan of basketball, what an unbelievable ending to that game six. I mean, I was jumping up and down for my Celtics fandom, but just as a basketball fan, what an unbelievable, unbelievable game. Yeah. I mean, just an incredible game. Like I watched the fourth quarter. I've been so locked into NBA draft guide stuff over the course of the last week. We're trying to lock down all of the copy and everything now. I think I'm finally through 55 of like the 60 longer profiles, which is really good. Um, and now over the course of the next few days, I'm just like kind of jumping in and doing some stuff. So I've been you know, totally locked in on that side. There's not going to be any tape breakdowns today on the show. We're not doing that. We're talking more base level about Celtics and Heat and how the Celtics over the course of the last three games have been able to dive into this. It's just like I've, you know, got too much on my plate at this point currently to be able to do that. But here's what I will tell you. On game six, if I told you that the Boston Celtics would lose the offensive rebounding battle 17 to 12, that they would shoot 20% from the three-point line while Miami shoots 46% from three, making 14 threes. If I would tell you Miami only turned the ball over five times compared to Boston's 12, you think that game's a blowout, right? Blowout. Like you think blowout. you think Miami wins this by 15, probably. Yeah. yeah. I, look, I know that Boston was winning that game throughout the course of the basically the entire game, like throughout a large swath of it, let's say, but starting in the second quarter, like they, they had real control over the scoreboard at least. It did always feel like to me that Miami's process w- was pretty good. And then especially when they went to that zone, you know, with what probably, I don't know, six minutes left, five minutes left. It felt like I'm sure I could pull this up while we're talking, but like they, they went to the zone late in the fourth quarter in Boston's offense just continues to be like completely a disaster every single time that the fourth quarter 
comes around and there are clutch minutes to be played, they really go like prevent offense. They ask, you know, Jason Tatum, go get something or Jalen Brown, go get something. And they go away from sharing the ball and, you know, playing well-spaced five out, you know, ball movement, somewhat offense to just like, okay, we're going to kill the clock for 20 seconds and get a shitty shot. Right. Yeah, it's their zone offense has been continually bad, and it yeah. basically just takes a Herculean effort to shoot Miami out of it. And I think what what Boston started to do more in Game Five, and then again in Game Six, was as soon as Miami went to the zone, just attack the offensive glass. Like it's a very elementary concept. We talk about it all the time at the high school level. Teams struggle to rebound out of a zone, and Miami is selling out to bump and rotate around the three-point line, and, and they're smaller to begin with, the zone is is going to be porous on the glass. And finally, like that, it's more of a, a mental adjustment than it is anything tactical. Like the Celtics just started going after it more, and I think that starts with Tatum and Brown, particularly in that fourth quarter. They went hard on the offensive glass, those two guys, and that really changed the tone for the Celtics. And obviously that Derek White put back at the end, was a huge offensive rebound, huge offensive rebound for the course of NBA history. But yeah, I think I think the tone was set by Tatum and Brown uh, in the way that they just said, you know what, it, I don't care what defense they're in, we're just going to go get the basketball. We're going to make a play somehow. Well, and uh, for, first and foremost, we should note that this was a 104-103 Celtics win where Derek White has one of the most incredible plays I've seen in NBA history, basically, is inbounding the ball. And Miami plays full denial toward Jason Tatum. They're assuming to stay in this series, to stay alive with their season, Boston is going to ride the guy that got them there. And I think ultimately the goal was probably to get the ball to Jason Tatum. But they played full denial with the man defending the inbounder, which is Max Struess. Max Struess back to the inbounder. As soon as Jason Tatum clears out high, because he's being guarded by Jimmy Butler and Jimmy Butler controls where he's going. Struess immediately shoots out and tries to deny him the ball 30 feet away from the rim. That opens up an area for Marcus Smart right in front of the inbounder. He gets the ball to Smart, Smart shoots, and it rims out perfectly for Derek White, who is crashing the offensive glass trying to make something happen. Derek White, genius basketball player, uh, someone that has incredible feel for the game, has displayed that over the course of his career, always plays hard. I'm really, really glad more than anything that Derek White got that moment because it's felt like at times throughout the course of this playoffs, I don't want to say he's been like the punching bag at times, but there have been moments where Celtics fans have been super frustrated with him in terms of just maybe knocking down, not knocking down shots here and there not being a great one-on-one defender against Jimmy Butler, despite being an all-defense caliber player for what he brings uh, from a team defensive perspective. I'm really, really glad that he got that moment because I think Derek White has been one of the 60 or so best players in the NBA for a few years now. And he's not necessarily treated that way, I think. And he had an unreal game before that put back too. He had some awesome defensive possessions on Jimmy Butler, a couple blocks and real huge. And a great game five as well for what it's worth too. Great game five. He's been really good. And another guy for the Celtics who's an unsung hero the last couple, Rob Williams really has changed the game with his energy in there. The, the threat that he has rolling to the basket at all times, whether it's putbacks or just some of the ridiculous slams that he gets 
think it adds a level of rim pressure that this Celtics team desperately needs because they can get so stagnant and take a lot of three-pointers and particularly some bad three-pointers. So when they're not generating good attempts, having Rob Williams on offense is great. He's been sneakily pretty good against Jimmy Butler too. Like there's more switchability that he has than meets the eye. He's disciplined with using his length. He understands how to move and his motor has been excellent. Like I'm, I'm all in on Rob Williams being part of the, the series changing momentum here these last couple games. It's not necessarily adjustments or tactics. It's just certain guys stepping up, playing harder and the team trusting them to do so. So, on offense for the Celtics, I agree with that. On defense for the Celtics, I disagree a little bit. I, not even disagree, but I think that they're doing a better job of shrinking the court and kind of sticking to their principles a little bit in terms of that. Like, it feels like Al Horford most of the time is doing a really good job of staying in the lane and help and just making it way harder for someone like Bam Adebayo to be able to find any spaces a roller. Or even when they run those interesting like dribble handoff actions, they run those ball screen actions with Gabe Vincent. They've done a really good job of just shrinking the court and making it so that the paint is a lot more compacted, I think. Yeah. Uh, and to me, that that is like strategic in terms of what like Joe Missoula and Boston are doing. The, the Rob Williams thing, just letting him go on Jimmy Butler in terms of switches, if that is a really interesting adjustment that – I would not have thought would have worked and has worked really, really well for Boston. He's been pretty good at being able to kind of string out, you know, even when Jimmy strings him out, like he's been pretty good at like being able to stay attached, use his length to contest. Jimmy might not quite have like the change of direction stuff that he typically does because of that injury, but it doesn't matter. Like he should still be able to beat Rob Williams, you would think, but Rob has really worked hard and done a great job in those settings as well. I think that I think that more than anything, Boston has gotten back into this series on the defensive end. And I think some of the adjustments they have made to shrink the court, you know, you look at the points that Miami has scored, 99, 97, 103, like they're averaging slightly under 100 points per game over the course of these last three games. And I think it's because Boston's principles in terms of making sure that the court is just much smaller and shrunken is why that they're in this position at this point. Well, and they started in game four by putting a lot more ball pressure on the perimeter too, that, you know, a lot of times they, they play with their length against a smaller team like Miami and they'll play back and they'll have their hand up and try to contest and force them to take pull up jumpers. Like they kind of came out with their backs against the wall and really have started applying that pressure a little bit more with help change the flow. But I, I agree with you. I think their help principles clogging the lane and not letting Adebayo get anything created by others has really helped Boston continue to slog up the game. And look, we've talked about it before on this podcast, when they can get out and transition and get easy ones, they're a different team because it builds Mm. their confidence. It builds their momentum. They need to find ways in game seven to, to play in the open floor a little bit more. And whether that's defense and being more aggressive, continuing to rebound the basketball. So Miami doesn't have more second chance opportunities going to be important for Boston. Totally agree. So here would be my next question for you. Who wins game seven? Oh, boy. 
<laughs> it's such a toss-up, man. It, it is because I think Miami's been the better team over the course of the first six yeah. games that we've seen. And I hate picking against Jimmy Butler. I hate picking against Eric Spolstra. There's just something about the momentum wave that the Celtics are on, knowing they're on their home court, knowing that they're probably a more talented group. And it's hard to predict in a make or miss league who's going to make more shots on any given night. And it does feel that that's going to be a huge part of the storyline here. It wasn't necessarily in game six. Yeah, it, but it, it has does, been for the first five games is, my point, is what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. it has been. It, so I know that we just kind of talked about the fact that I think that Boston's defense is the reason that they're back in this in many ways. I will say like some of the subtle adjustments that Boston has made in order to get Jason Tatum a little bit more space to operate, I think have been really positive. Like it feels like they're, they've been able to find these like empty side actions for Jason Tatum a little bit more regularly so that he can create in a little bit more open space. And it feels like he's been able to get downhill and get to the basket a little bit more easier over the course of these last few games. Like he took, I think like he went like 15 for 15 from the line in game six, if I remember correctly, like it it felt like he really tried to attack and like play physically uh, and, and kind of impose that driving will uh, on the Miami heat in that game. So uh, if they can keep doing that, I think that, yes, they probably win. The big adjustment that Boston still has not figured out is how to attack Miami's zone. Yep. And if Miami goes zone for a large swath of this game, Boston is going to have to figure out how to score against it. And like, it might be as simple as they're going to have to shoot over the top of it. And that becomes like a totally variable thing. Like Boston is probably one of the best, like high volume three point shooting teams that we've seen in the last like long while of basketball. But I just don't know if it it is a toss up to me. Like I know everyone's thinking that this series is over. They got it back to Boston. Like, there's no way Boston loses game seven in the garden. You know, there's just, there, there's no way that this is going to happen. And like, I tend to agree with like that idea of like riding the wave of momentum, but I'm also just very worried that like, we still haven't found an answer for this zone problem for Miami, if I'm Boston. And that feels like the biggest question. How much does Eric Spolstra and how early does Eric Spolstra did this, uh, decide to do that? Yep. And there are other subplots as well, right? Gabe Vincent's health and can he come back to the shot maker that he yep. was during the first three games? Cause he's been a huge difference for the Miami heat. I mean, Marcus smart has been on a, a really hot streak as a shooter the last couple games, which has given Boston that huge lift that they need. Can he sustain that moving forward a little bit more and continue to make shots into a game seven? Because if he goes cold, he is one guy on the Celtics who is prone to taking a bad one or two or even three throughout the course of a game. And those possessions just can't happen in a game seven. And that's where 
you know, Boston's made more shots. They've defended a little bit harder. They've changed a couple of things, but they've scraped by with, uh, you know, on their teeth in game six. And yeah. it very much feels like they have one, two, three, four, sometimes five possessions in the course of a game where it's just a bad three-pointer for somebody that's a bailout shot. It wasn't shot in momentum. It's just kind of we don't really know where else we're going to go with this, mostly against zone, but sometimes against man-to-man too. And those just can't happen. They need to continue to be in attack mode, attack mode, attack mode, find the hot hand, or let Brown and Tatum do that heavy lifting. Like Smart cannot be taking those shots. I think I'm going to go – with Boston, they are the most talented team between the two of them. But I don't think this is like a, you know, oh my God, Boston is like definitely going to win this thing. Like I, I don't have, if I'm Miami, I don't have that defeatist attitude uh, heading into this at all. I, I think that they still have some real schematic advantages against Boston in terms of that zone issue that Boston has not solved yet to where I I would be worried. And like, we can talk about like Jimmy Butler versus Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown against Bam Adebayo and everything in these games, like the Eric Spolstra versus Joe Missoula thing still exists. And I'd be a little bit worried. Plus the, the garden has hardly been like impenetrable throughout the course of the playoffs at this point. Uh, it feels like the Celtics have lost quite a few games at home, and I don't know. I, I think that this is tough. Uh, I think this is a this is a great game that I'm genuinely yeah. so excited to watch and so excited to try and, like, parse through afterward, which I probably will do. I'll probably go live after the game uh, and, and talk a little bit about it. So the thing with the Celtics, and I've watched enough of them over the last two years or two years plus with this iteration of the roster, is that they're the most unpredictable team in the league because you don't know what version of them is going to show up. They have the talent to blow the doors off of anybody that they face. And if they are behind by 20 at the half, that lead isn't safe because they can get nuclear in a hurry and they instantly believe in each other. But 20-point leads that they have aren't safe either because they can get a little bit complacent. They can take some bad shots from time to time again. There's just no way of knowing which version of the Celtics are going to show up. I think in a Game 7 environment with Spolster's experience, with heat culture being a clearly real thing, with Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo, all the competitors they have, you know what you're going to get out of Miami. It's just which which version of Boston shows up. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a quick commercial break, and then we're going to dive into the ignite. This is one that you're going to lead because you have some uh, you have some interesting takes here on the G League ignite and where we're going here moving forward. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection. With NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. 
some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, for instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla minus one recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan and you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon prime or something to be able to watch it. So when I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. NordVPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot-blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions. Just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y, to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account, nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. Okay, we're back. Adam. You wanted to talk a little bit about the G League Ignite program, some of the prospects this year, and generally some of the directional pieces of this program moving forward that are very intriguing. Like, I, I, you know, what does this program look like moving forward? What iterations of prospects does this program get? It feels like they're going younger in terms of the players that they're recruiting. So, Adam, I'll let you lead this. Where are we? Where are we going here? Yeah, so I, I wanted to take this opportunity to just kind of reflect on essentially this being the third year of the Ignite program, spitting out high-quality prospects. And there still seems to be, in my mind, a little bit of a disconnect between a lot of us in the draft community of how much to value the tape that we see, the experience of playing professional basketball in a G League setting at that age, and trying to compare that to other players in college. And I think each of the three seasons has been a learning experience for those who are putting together the Ignite program of how to best showcase their guys and put them in positions to succeed. So the first season Mm -hmm. of the program, which was coming out of COVID, essentially, uh, they had Jalen Green, Jonathan Kaminga, Isaiah Todd, Dacian Nix that were there, like some talented, really high end guys and then some role players and Nix and Todd around them. I think what they learned pretty quickly after that first year is we really need a lot of veterans that are here to help steer the ship. They bring in some of those veterans for year two, as well as having the talented guards that were there. Dyson Daniels, Jaden Hardy, Marjan Beauchamp. They had Scoot Henderson on their roster as well. This was the start of that two-year experiment. And Michael Foster as a front court guy. 
and the yep. spacing did not fit. And I don't think yep. any of the the major players that were supposed to be there, the guys like Scoot and Hardy and Daniels, Bochamp, none of those four got to show the maximum of what they were capable of because this was just a team that did not have a ton of floor spacing. And year three, here we are, and it seems like the Ignite have finally figured out a way to piece that puzzle together. They have Scoot Henderson. A, a, clo- they're close. They're closer. They have Scoot Henderson. They bring yeah. in guys like Leonard Miller and C.D. Sissoko, and they commit a little bit more to having the ball in Scoot's hands when he's there. They brought in, in theory, the right veterans to help space the floor around those guys. And it feels a little bit more like a true team construct in some ways, but it's also worth noting here. And this is the the biggest thing for me. There's so much more that Leonard Miller and CD Sissoko in particular can show in their offensive arsenals that they didn't necessarily get to this year by playing alongside of Scoot Henderson. And that is, to me, one of the bigger takeaways that I have from the last couple of years of the Ignite program is that some of these guys can be placed in different situations when they turn pro and move on to the NBA. That actually puts them in areas where they can be impactful beyond what they showed at a semi-professional level, so to speak, with the G League Ignite program. So I'm, I'm getting to be really high on Leonard Miller and C.D. Sissoko in this class because I think that they have a lot more than they got to show this year. So, yeah, I, I am, uh, I'm probably leading the Leonard Miller, like hype train fan club yeah. on some level. So I, I get that. Uh, the spacing this year, I thought was quite bad to be honest with you. And part of that is who they had. Like scoot is a developing three point shooter. He shot 32% from three this season, just to be clear. Note that number 32%. I've seen and heard some people pull out the 27% number uh, that he shot during the G League's regular season. If, you ab- if you're able to so- sort by both the showcase numbers and the regular season numbers, which you should do because the showcase is a part of the regular season in the G League, he shot 32% from three. Actually, if you add in the Metropolitan's games, he shot 33% from three on an insane diet of pull-ups. Anybody that's like ruling out Scoot Henderson shooting because he shot 27% from three in regular season G League Ignite games is not doing enough homework and not paying attention and not, frankly, like worth listening to, in my opinion. Having said that, he, Leonard Miller, C.D. Sissoko, not the most polished three-point shooters at this point. What they really needed to do in that circumstance, and frankly, for next season as well, given the players that they have, they need to find a spacing five. They just have never found a floor spacing five. Um, They had Eric Mika this year. Mika Mika is like not a spacing five. They really did a good job throughout the early portion of the season attaching John Jenkins to Scoot Henderson. Yep, That's basically like what their whole entire goal was. Literally the only guys that they should be looking for wins and losses don't matter here. They should be looking for veterans who can shoot. That's it. Like defensively, this team's going to have very little chance to be like successful defensive team. Like teach them the principles, teach them the fundamentals, go get guys who can shoot. And Oh, by the way, like they haven't gone out and like got vets that can like really defend at a high level. So 
at the end of the day, I, I just say that you really, really need to go find more shooting even and maybe keep two of those three guys on the court together at once, as opposed to all of Miller, Sissoko and Henderson. Having said that, like there are obviously some real uh, concessions that need to be made in terms of making sure that these guys get enough minutes, they're playing enough time, everything like that. But like this team shot 25.8 three point attempts per game this year. That, that's just like an insanely low number. Yep. Like th- th- they are not spacing the court well. They shot two and a half fewer attempts from three per 100 possessions than any other team in the G League this year. And again, you can point to the personnel of the youth as to some reason as to why that is. But I don't agree that this is a well-spaced situation. And it's been like that for a couple of years now, as you mentioned in your thing. Like, I don't know, man. Like, I I might be good with seeing, like, the Jason Hart experience at this point. And I might be interested in seeing somebody else. I'm not saying he's doing a bad job Mm -hmm. or anything. He's probably doing a really good job of developing these guys. But like in terms of like the on-court product, maybe he could hire someone that can like run, you know, more modern, you know, offense in terms of floor spacing and everything. I'd be a little bit more intrigued by that. So, and and that's the push-pull of the situation, right? I think that on paper, the Ignite solved a couple of those issues by bringing in John Jenkins and Aubrey Dawkins and trying to have more three-point specialists around them on this roster. But if you're catering a program to the younger guys that you have, you are trying to give them minutes first and foremost, trying to put them in positions where they can succeed but you also have to prove to NBA scouts what they can do in different roles and positions. And I think a huge part of why we didn't see more lineups with Jenkins, Dawkins, and Scoot out there at at all times with the three of them was because there's a huge need to see whether CD Sissoko and Leonard Miller can provide that floor spacing role. And it's, it's the difference sometimes in having a program that's set around trying to always win games as opposed to show and prepare talent for the next level. But, but you know what, though? Like, on that level, it's not like these guys were firing threes up this year. No, they weren't. Like, like Leonard Miller, what, he probably took two and a half threes a game, something like that, I would venture. I'll, I'll look at the number while we're talking, but, like – you know, he took, he took 2.23 three point attempts per game this year outside of John Jenkins, who took eight, three point attempts per game and made 42% of them. And is like yep. totally absurd as a shooter. Right. Yep. Cause that's who he is. Um, and that was in the regular season, like in the showcase, I'm sure the numbers are pretty similar in that regard. Like, yeah, Jenkins took six and a half threes a game and made 39% of them. Like outside of those guys, it, it did really feel like, there wasn't a ton of spacing around these players and there wasn't a ton of space on offense for these guys to fire. And like Mojave King would fire from three from time to time. That was great. Like I really enjoyed watching him get a chance to like take shots and just go for it. Um, Didn't always happen though. Like it it was, it was hit or miss depending on the day. So 
Like, like Mojave King, his entire career is going to be based off of if he's going to become an NBA player, uh, it's going to be based on him being able to like catch and fire from three. Right. And Mojave King this season, if you look at his 48 games that he played, took three, three point attempts per game. Like it's not like, it it just kind of isn't enough. Like he was playing, like he played 27 minutes a night. Like I get that you don't want Mojave King to like domineer your offense or anything, but he's a, fairly good shooter like i mean i know that he shot like 32 percent, but i thought he got better throughout the course of the year for the most part and to like not again like i I just think we need to let these guys fire or we need to go get shooters so that they can drive and attack and play a little bit more and by the way like this the next next season's roster you never know in terms of who they're going to bring in like later. Sometimes they go and get some of these guys, you know, later in the process. I don't think it's going to be like, I think that this roster is going to be a bit messy next season. If I'm being completely honest, um, I'm not really a London Johnson guy uh, in terms of like his long-term NBA potential. I think he's more of like a, interesting combo guard that's like six foot three six foot you know something like that and maybe can do a little bit of stuff but again he only took two threes a game this season like if we're gonna have london johnson be an nba player you need to just give him the confidence to fire from three because that's who his game is it's what his game's gonna be uh like I, I haven't seen enough from him to like really make me buy into him as like a long-term definite NBA player. I haven't really seen enough from Dink Pate to make me think that like he can make a difference at the G League level yet. I think he's a fascinating high upside talent, yeah. uh, you know, six foot eight lead guard who can like really handle the ball and really, really pass. But like, this is the kind of guy that everybody's looking for league wide, like these dribble pass potential to shoot wing players or guards. I think that there's just some like glue as a ball handler missing right now. And if you're going to play him at point, I'm a little bit concerned about that. Thierry Darlin, the six foot six, like, with a seven foot wingspan wing shooter that they've brought in uh, from Africa, he can like actually be like pretty interesting. I think as a shooter again, though, I I don't know. I don't know what he's going to look like in that setting. They have Babakar Sané who will be back. Like the big one though, is modest Bezelis and modest is like a six foot 10, like creator who's going to try and break guys down off the bounce. And you know, like if Thierry Darlin doesn't really shoot and then like you have Dink Pate, who I don't really trust as a shooter yet. And then you have London Johnson, who you're like might not empower to shoot at a super high level given this season. Is Modest going to have like a ton of space to like just grab and like he's going to be great in transition. But like, I don't know. I'm, yeah, I, the idea of the G League Ignite is really good. I just don't love the execution of the on-court product a lot of the time at this point. So I think and that, that continued yeah. through this season, whereas yeah. you were you're a little bit higher on this season than I am. To me, like all of the same issues remain. Yeah, I'm a little bit higher on the offensive end of the floor. And I think part of that was that they at least committed to a style. 
You got me here? I got you. They committed to a style is the last thing we heard. I do think as we're – I do think, Sam, you you got me. We're good. We are rolling. Uh, I do think that Scoot Henderson was able to be committed to playing through him a little bit more this year, and that was the big change from year two of the G League Ignite experience to year three is that they more recognized who their best prospect was and found ways to try to showcase him in his his primary role. So I disagree with that too because a lot of – so the problem is that last year they came in and thought Jaden Hardy was the one, right? And they did the same thing. They gave Jaden Hardy all free reign to just go but they kind of did it at the expense of Dyson Daniels who frankly is like was better in that season in the ignite. There's a reason Dyson Daniels went ninth overall and Jaden Hardy went 37, right? Like they, if, the, if you remember like the first half of that year was entirely the Jaden Hardy show. Yep. Yeah. So like, yeah. I, I don't, to, to me, like it's the same. It's just that Scoot Henderson was better. Like they, they were always going to empower that lead ball handler. It's just Scoot H- Henderson could do it. Yeah, I felt like they were juggling too many backcourt pieces a year ago with Hardy, Daniels, and and Scoot. And maybe this year it just it looked and it felt cleaner because there wasn't that your turn, my turn thing that it turned into yeah. by the end of the season. Particularly knowing that you know the the trio of those three didn't shoot the ball really well a season ago. Uh, but I, I do think contextualizing the stats and the team impact that we get from some of these guys is really important for evaluators to try to, to try to parse through because, you know, if if we're going to have complaints about the spacing or guys not really taking as many threes, like doesn't that make Scoot Henderson having eight and a half assists per 40 minutes that more impressive The fact that he's maybe not operating in, as you would call it a ton of space. Like to me, that's, that's such an unbelievable number to be able to hit if you're not kicking it out to elite shooters every single time. If you're the focal point of a, a defense, if, if guys are going underneath screens against you and you still hit that number, that's outrageously good for Scoot Henderson to do. And I think that that part of the context doesn't get brought up enough, particularly on the offensive end of the floor. Yes, a, a thousand percent. This is this is why I'm much higher on Scoot Henderson yeah. as a passer and playmaker, and you are too, I know, yep. than anybody else seems to be. Like, this offense was a – I hated watching it. it. It did not accentuate Scoot Henderson's gifts. It did not accentuate, like, what he is capable of. Everybody talks about, oh, my God, he settled in the mid-range. He settled this. He settled that. You know, like all due respect to Leonard Miller, I think Leonard has a chance to shoot long term, but especially early in the season, he wasn't there yet as a shooter, certainly. And then you have Eric Mika there, who is, you know, just a rim runner, basically a short roller to an extent, but like somebody who's going to try and get all the way to the basket and finish. He's a good touch around the basket. And then you have City Sissoko, who like definitely can't shoot. And then you have, you know, X, Y, and Z guys who just don't take shots outside of John Jenkins, like teams just packed the paint. Like there's a reason Scoot was settling. And like, yeah, I think there are also multiple reasons in terms of like probably the wanted some contact avoidance given that 
he didn't really have anything to play for. This is not a competitive team. They're a team that is like a developmental team, basically playing in this competitive league. So I, I just struggle with the entire tenor of the conversation regarding Scoot Henderson. And you can tell what people have actually sat down and watched these games yeah. and what people haven't and like who hasn't. Because if you actually sit down and watch these games and you still think Scoot Henderson is like not a great passer, it's brilliant. It's like, no, look at the context of what is around him in terms of why he's struggling. Look at the context of the fact that there is never any space in the paint for him to drive. Like just, just keep all of this in mind as you're making evaluations and determinations on these players. The context is incredibly important uh, around all of this. People just assume, Oh, he's in the G league. He's you know wide open space. Like, you know, this is not the college court anymore. And it's just like, not really. Again, they took 25 threes a game. The teams at the top of the league, they were taking like, I think like 40, 35 to 40 basically. So, yeah, no, I, I just this this is where these things annoy me a little bit. This is where this is where I get frustrated. And we'll do a deep yeah. dive into Scoot at some point on the channel, yeah. but yeah. I think the last thing I want to mention with the Ignite is the defensive end of the floor. Because I I always feel like it needs to be mentioned that when you are playing in a professional league, you might be able to hide a teenager out on the floor or get the most out of him. But when you have three or four of them that are on the court at the same time going against yeah. grown men who have been doing this stuff habitually for years, decade at least, and know yeah. how to exploit any type of weakness because they're fringe it's, NBA players. They, especially they're going to when you're playing. Yeah. Especially when you're playing like base level defenses, like they are like yeah. that. And on top of it, like those guys are always just going to have like that intrinsic knowledge defensively that teenagers don't. Yep. Uh, and exactly what you said, like when you're on offense facing that defense, you're going to know exactly how to attack that defense based off of having played professionally for in some cases, five years, in some cases, even three right. years uh, having played college. Like these guys are at an advantage over these guys. It's just, yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's a and, totally different ballgame. And the numbers and the metrics need to be thrown out as a result of that because they're going to be bad for everybody across the board. It's a bunch of teenagers playing together in a professional basketball league that they're not necessarily ready for. The whole point of the program is to prepare them for the NBA and to have these growing pains and learn these lessons now. They were atrocious on pick-and-roll coverage this year. And you know they added a big man in Eric Mika who's – probably a little more offensive minded using his touch around the basket than he is a great pick and roll defender or rim protector. And that's the long-term conversation that I think the ignite probably need to have is, okay, there's an opportunity again to go out there and either make that offensive sacrifice. They need get the stretch five, the guy who can space the floor around all these young yeah. guys, because we know Younger prospects don't always shoot the ball very well, at least on a consistent basis. It's hard to do as a teenager to, over a long sample size, be above a 35, 36% three-point shooter. Just really hard to do. But the flip side is 
you're probably going to be really porous on defense if you get a stretch five. Because if you had a stretch five who could also protect the rim, he'd be in the NBA. He'd be on a roster and not available for the Ignite to be able to sign. Yes, yes and no. I think they'd be better off finding like a slow-footed five who can shoot in like defense. Like Jay Huff just won like the, what did he win? He won like defense player of the year or something in the G League this year. Like he, he was quite perfect. good in the G League. I know that. Like like Jay Huff makes a lot of sense for them. Like you, you can find guys like that in the G League, I think. But, but, and but I think they going, need to do a better. Does going there make sense for Jay Huff though? I, look, you do get a lot of notes. Like, more scouts are there, like, watching. It's just like you're going to get called up on some level, you would hope. Um, and then after that, the dream dies in terms of having these guys. But, yeah, I mean, the, the thing for them is, like, they just need to be able to find a big – like, like the main Celtics or the main Red Claws, I forget what they're called. They had a guy named uh, Reggie Kisunlal, if I remember correctly, uh, this year. He's like a seven-footer who can kind of handle the ball a little bit and theoretically can shoot. Uh, he played 13 games with them this year. He shot 37% from three. He blocked one shot per game in 10 minutes. His defensive positioning, all over the map, right? But, like, look – the main red claws, they picked that guy out of Europe and saw like, this is an interesting player. We want to have in our scheme. They did it. Like you can do it. It just takes real high level scouting to be able to find these guys and give them a chance. And Oh, by the way, if you're picking a guy out of Europe, like Reggie Kisun like the odds are they're going to be pretty happy to come to the ignite because they're going to get all sort of notoriety and attention by being within that program that people are paying attention to all the time. Yeah. Look, Scoot, I think is much better than the, the numbers indicate because of the context. I think with guys like Leonard Miller and CD Sissoko, they can do more than they showed this year in the G league ignite with the ball in their hands. They didn't get to show that because of the context, the defense is going to be bad for all of them because they're a bunch of teenagers playing in a professional league because of the context the Ignite clearly as a program has a lot to continue to figure out with how to get all of these pieces to best mesh, how to have a bunch of teenage studs complement each other in the right way moving forward. But I don't think that that should devalue the individual in a lot of ways that it has seemingly in the past in draft circles at times. Jaden Hardy falling all the way down to the second round. It wasn't a great season from him tape-wise. It certainly wasn't. But if we can find college players who have poor seasons or miss time due to injury and value their pre-college tape, I think we should be able to do the same with some of these guys and get a feel for what they're capable of in a context outside of what they're playing in with the Ignite. And because of that, I've turned into a guy who's going to be top 20 on all three of Scoot Henderson, Leonard Miller, and C.D. Sissoko. Yeah, look, I've Scoot and Leonard in the lottery. I think I keep kind of just like sliding down CD a little bit, like here and there. Certainly will be like in the top 25-ish for me, something like that. Um, But yeah, like a guy that I, you know, a first round pick. I think CD is a first round pick uh, based off of what I've seen. Okay. 
Let's talk about some early entry decisions before we got here. The NBA draft early entry deadline for college basketball comes up on May 31st. The important part of recognizing what that is and what that means is it is not the early entry deadline for everybody. There is another early entry deadline that I believe is June 12th where guys can stay in the draft past May 31st. They just can't go back to college basketball at the end of the day. And that is going to be an intriguing talking point here because as we get more interconnected as a basketball community, it does feel like there are some more interesting avenues being potentially seen. Like for instance, you know, I'm sure that, you know, the NBL is an option for a few of these kids that might not want to go back to college, but might want to go play in like a scheme that makes a little bit more sense for them because they can play up tempo. They can, you know, do X, Y, and Z things. So I'm intrigued to see how many guys take the opportunity to actually just go back to school and just play another year. There are some guys in the transfer portal right now where that could make sense as well. I'm intrigued to see how many guys stay in the draft past the deadline date, thinking that the the other piece of this is realistically May 31st is early to try and get assurances from NBA teams in terms of like a promise. It's, It's very, very hard for teams to box themselves in three weeks out from the draft or three and a half weeks out from the draft. But if you get to June 12th, you might be able to get a promise at that point that you're a little bit more comfortable with and might be willing to stay in the draft, which I I think is, you know, could the Ignite be an option for some of these kids? Could, you know, the NBL be an option for some of these kids? I think that is a really interesting thing to kind of explore. Um, And we'll find out, I think, later this week, and we'll talk about it uh, then. But ultimately, I think the big date here is the college one, because that's the one where we're going to find out if a lot of these kids are going back. So I'll ask you this, Adam. Who is the decision that you're most looking forward to learning more about here? Ooh, it's an interesting question. So I will add one caveat on to, to what we were just talking about with the complexity of some of these decisions is the, the growing trend, and you and I have referenced this before, of second round picks to very much be jettisoned to the G League and be assigned to two-way status. That so there isn't that same guaranteed money that necessarily is attached with getting drafted, maybe outside the top 35 in the draft, let's say. So uh, I think that there's a lot more complexity to, for some of these guys as opposed to, you know, I can go back to school, I can make some money, or I can stay in this draft and hope that this works out for me in a way where I can land in a situation that allows me to move up the ladder sooner in my career. Well, and that's that's the interesting part of this. And I think that what people don't recognize is at the end of the day, you're trying to find specific teams that like specific players, which means the players that have a bit more of like a normal archetype, like for instance, let's take like Olivier Prosper, right? Omax. I think that Omax plays a position and a role that every single team is looking for. If you buy the jumper, he is a six foot eight wing who is an extremely high level defender who is a, strange but legitimate NBA athlete uh, 
uh, in terms of like the way he moves on the court and everything. And if you believe in the shot, you probably believe in him. And when he went and like, you know, burned the nets down in his pro day, I think a lot of people, you know, said we can work with this shot. Sure. At the very least, maybe not that he can shoot, but that we can continue to do some things that will help him show growth. And by the time he's 23 years old, he might be able to be in our rotation. That's why a guy like that stays in the draft. But if you look at somebody else, for instance, like Andre Jackson, who I think has by far the most interesting Hmm. decision of any player in this upcoming week. He has, I think, a smaller number of teams that will probably be interested in him. I think that the pool of teams chasing Andre Jackson is probably more limited than the pool of teams chasing Omax Prosper. And the reason for that is Andre Jackson's game, right? Andre Jackson has a very unique game that you have to work to fit into a scheme. Omax, you can just throw him in as a quote unquote three and D wing, and it'll probably work. Andre Jackson, you have to work around the lack of shooting in a pretty substantial way. And while I love Andre Jackson and I will probably come I won't have a first round grade on him, but like I will probably be like just outside of the first round on him because I think he is a basketball genius that is also a top 5% athlete uh, in the NBA that is also like an incredible passer, incredible kid, plays with a high motor. Like we watch what Bruce Brown is doing in the NBA playoffs right now and how early Bruce Brown was able to get on the court in the NBA uh, just due to his feel his IQ and his defense forget even when the shot was there Bruce's shot was never really there for the first couple of years I believe in Andre Jackson I don't think that there is a large swath of teams out there that will believe in Andre Jackson the way that I do because of his lack of shooting uh, at this point of his career and I think the shot just like straight up is like they're going to have to like completely like revamp it. Like I think it is a bottom up page one rewrite in terms of shot mechanics for him in order to fix it, which is like kind of good because like you're not starting with anything and you can just kind of like work with what you want to do. But it's also a multi-year project for him. And will teams want to invest in that? Will teams want to invest in him thinking he might be the next Gary Payton when Gary Payton, the second, when Gary Payton, the second took multiple stops to become like a legitimate NBA player. That's super valuable. I think Andre Jackson is going to be really valuable at some point. It's just like when uh, I I think is a real question for him. Sure. And I I think it's concerning that he hasn't gotten that level of, of a shooter yet. He's already seemed to have, undergone some mechanical tweaks at UConn and tried different things and, and shot the ball in greater volume so, so this year. But for, for what it's worth, I will say they didn't really do anything with the shot last year um, sure. or like last summer they, like, cause he hit 36% from three on super limited volume the year before. And they were like, okay, like let's just let this rock a little bit. And they didn't do anything with the shot from one year to the next last or from sophomore year to from junior year, sophomore to junior. 
Yeah. And I think the, the hardest position for me to always figure out in these drafts are the big toolsy wings who aren't quite good enough as on ball creators in the NBA, but don't shoot it right now because you're either banking on them becoming a good three point shooter or just being so otherworldly of an athlete or defender that they can figure out how to piece all of the other tools that they have together. And that's where, for me, like the, the biggest decisions are Dylan Mitchell, uh, Jordan Walsh, Julian Phillips, like these guys who are all really toolsy, long athletes. So you look at them and you say they should be long on an NBA court because of how they move, the different positions that they can defend, maybe their natural athletic gifts. But it's so hard to fit in the NBA as a role-playing wing who can't shoot. And I'm yeah. super fascinated, A, what the feedback is on any of those guys, and B, because there's so many of them clumped in this decision in the class, do all of them stay? Do all of them leave? How do they kind of fight for those few spots of the teams that could take them amongst themselves? I'm really fascinated for how that shakes out. Yeah, and to close the loop on Andre Jackson before we get to those guys, because I think that you're 100% right. Like, there's a glut of these guys. This is a shooting poor draft in general. And adding those guys confirmed to the pool would only work to continue to make that a reality. On Andre Jackson, the other thing worth noting here is the Connecticut piece of it, right? So he'll come back. He'd be, like, the captain of Connecticut's basketball team. If he comes back and... I think I've seen like a couple of rumors that like they're in the mix, like for like transfer shooters. Right. Um, one of which uh, I thought like is, is one of them. Hold on. Let, let me make sure this has been reported. Yes. Okay. It has. Uh, I believed that I saw one of them being Cam Spencer. I didn't want to bring that up yeah. to you beforehand. Cause you obviously like Cam Spencer went to boys Latin where you yeah. coach. Yeah. Um, like, it's been reported that Connecticut is like a potential landing spot for Cam Spencer. If they get Cam Spencer, who, by the way, like should go there, that's like a perfect fit for him across the board in terms of like scheme. You just plop him into the Jordan Hawkins role and fire, right? That's that's easy to me. You can say it. Yep. You get him and you get Andre Jackson back that's the best team in the country next year. Yeah. And more, more clinging. That's what I'm just super excited to yeah, be you, watching more clinging. You get more Donovan clinging. You have an, an awesome like rest of, or you have an awesome freshman class coming in yep. with Stefan castle, who I think is awesome. Stud Solomon ball. Who's like this really interesting, long combo wing Can score it. Jaden Ross. Who's like the six foot seven, like floor spacing wing. Yep. Jalen Stewart, who's like this athletic six foot five floor spacing wing. The thing that Connecticut does really well is they actually find the guys who can shoot that make it work around Andre Jackson and they make the scheme work around Andre Jackson. You also have Tristan Newton potentially coming back as well, which would be interesting. Like it would be an amazing opportunity for Andre Jackson to potentially go like back to back and win a title again. In the 2024 draft is something that we'll talk about in the context of the rest of these guys. I've got a lot of worries. The more that I look into that draft, the more I am like deathly terrified of what that draft might look like in terms of an overall value proposition. But it's, it's interesting across the board for Andre Jackson. I think like stay or go, like whatever he wants to do. I find it to be so, so interesting 
across like he could go really either way but like i just hope that they find the team that loves him like like i frankly love his game and love his like overall ability on the court because i do think it's a very specific role and if he doesn't find that role, it might be a little bit hard for him. I don't think he has too much to lose by going back, Sam, because he's already proven that he's a winner. He's an intangibles guy. I think the UConn situation is one that he feels really comfortable in. So you mentioned next year's draft class being a little bit different. Like if he goes back and UConn makes another run, at least to the Sweet 16, if not further than that, he's such a intangibles leadership culture guy that that's going to shine through for any team. That's going to be drawn to his play style and what he brings anyway. So yes and no. Like, I think there's a real argument to be made that like, he's not going to have as much notoriety next year. The, the odds are he will not have as much notoriety next year. If only because they just won the title winning every game by at least 13 games. And he was an integral part of that. So like, if you're, a proponent of riding the wave, right? He's the odds are that he will not be able to ride a bigger wave than this one going toward the NBA. So I do get it on that front. If he was to improve the shooter with the way that that draft is shaping up next year, he would go in the top 20. He could only help himself. Yep. He could only help himself by doing that. But like if he doesn't improve the shooter after they change his mechanics, it might not be as good. Like he, he might, you know, just people might have less confidence in him as a shooter. To me, though, personally, like I don't think people are going to have people can't probably have less confidence in him as a shooter right. than what That's they right. have now. Right. So, look, I think it's a hard decision. I, I don't begrudge him. Like, I, I think that it's one that like, again, as someone that's in a that's an enormous fan of his game. I, I just really, really hope he finds the right situation more than anything. And I know the situation is great at Connecticut. It's just up in the air. If he'll find the right situation in the NBA. And that's what worries me a little bit. Sure. Yeah, totally. Uh, so I just hope that the, I hope that they're able to find that. Uh, okay. You mentioned a lot of like toolsy wings a minute ago. Yeah. Jordan Walsh, Dylan Mitchell, um, Julian uh, Phillips, Julian Phillips is one. Yep. Who who among that trio let's go with? I'm trying to think if there's anybody else I want to throw into that group. No, I think that trio is probably right. Who among that trio do you like the most? I think long-term it's Phillips. I agree with you for what it's worth. I think Why? it's Phillips. Uh, I like the functionality of his defense a lot more than Mitchell's. Uh, and I think Jordan Walsh is also a functional defender. I buy the shot for Phillips coming around a lot more than I buy it for Walsh. Agree across the board on that. Agree. I have Phillips as like a late first rounder right now. I have Walsh 40, 40 to 45 ish, probably like probably closer to 45 ish. And then I have Phillips or I have Mitchell like outside of my top 60. Like I'm just like not really interested in Dylan Mitchell. To be honest, uh, he, I think he, I think he, look, I, I tend not to like operate in absolutes with this stuff. Cause I think there are so many reasons that a kid could decide that he doesn't want to go back to college. Right. Doesn't want to continue to be a student athlete. Doesn't want to continue to be 
um, in the same situation and didn't enter the portal. Maybe there are financial concerns with some of these kids. Whatever, right? On him, I will say that I think that like he would be making his career a bit more, his potential professional career a bit more difficult by going pro now. I agree with that. Uh, I'm overall kind of the lowest on him. And again, these guys are just, they're very difficult for me because you see the athleticism, you see the way that their tools can be used defensively, but man, are they poor shooters right now? And I just, I really struggle with the, there's a disconnect. And I mentioned this online earlier this week, you know, we're watching the NBA playoffs and how many guys like Jared Vanderbilt or whoever, Isaac Okoro, have gotten removed from playoff rotations or seen their their minutes just completely diminish because they yep. don't offer their floor spacing in crunch time when their teams need it. And to me, there's a disconnect when we criticize the lack of jump shot ability for those players and say that that's the right decision for the team but also fall in love with these toolsy athletic wings who can't shoot it a lick pre-draft. Right. Like the fate for them is going to end up being the same unless they can develop that jumper. And I'm, I tend to be really hesitant on buying any of these guys as a result of that. But I just, I'm so curious to know what the feedback is for them from different teams. Does staying in this draft, is that a bet on them thinking that, they have a promise somewhere they're going to shoot. They feel like they'll land in the right situation or do, like you mentioned with the 2024 draft, do they see the potential to go back to school, end up piecing it together a little bit more as a shooter and then see themselves as a top 20 or even higher type of guy a year from now as being the right move and appeal. So Julian Phillips is an interesting case to talk about with this. And I actually think that, this is where it's important to actually know the context of high school tape, right? And it's really, really important, especially with these guys that are one and dones, to have looked at the high school tape in many cases. Dylan Mitchell has never made shots in his career from three at all, point blank, like period. Julian Phillips, however, playing for Upward Stars in the summer of 2021 on the Adidas circuit, made... 21 of 48 of his catch and shoot threes for 43.8%. If you look back through his high school career, you look back through the numbers, he's actually been a pretty good shooter up until this point of his career. And this year just did not work. I think that some of the mechanical adjustments that he made, he kind of squared his body off a little bit too much as a shooter. I think that earlier in high school, he actually had a bit more of a turned body uh, in like his right leg a right foot was ahead of his left foot and because of that his elbow was in perfect alignment with his right leg basically and it was all in alignment with the rim and i thought that it made a little bit more sense the shot made more sense looking at it whereas now his body is like squared off toward yep. the basket in like a very strange way uh and that, that's like those are mechanical adjustments that you can make like those are easy a guy has touch okay, like we think we can fix that. Julian Phillips shot 82% from the line this year and has actual tape previously that says he can be a three-point shooter in the NBA if like things go well in terms of his development. Gordon Walsh for me is somewhere in the middle. 
I tend to think he's probably not going to shoot, to be honest. The ball comes out of his hand quite hard. And he shot 28% from three this season, despite the fact that I actually quite like his shot prep. Like, I I think he's like pretty good and clean in terms of like the lower half getting into the shot. And like, he's confident. He takes them like off the hop. Like he is misses. And those are the guys that I get a little bit more worried about in terms of shooting. The fact that, well, everything kind of looks okay here in the shot just isn't falling, right? Like, what, how do you fix those guys? Like with him, like you could get a stronger follow through is one thing. Like, I think that his ball trajectory comes out a bit differentiated from time to time. Okay. So there are fixes, but I think there are like fewer fixes with him, which and, makes it a little bit tricky. And I think with Walsh, there were also times when he was just such defended as such a non-shooter that oh, the, repu- totally. the reputation has already been built in, in a certain way. Uh, but even with Phillips, and, and you're talking about how he shot it in high school and that tape mm-hmm. does exist, I think that makes the decision to stay or go back to school so much even more fascinating because – if he just goes back and has one really good year as a shooter and is up at 36, 37%, now all of a sudden the narrative is that he had genuinely, one down year. Yeah, that's a lottery pick if he does that. Right. And that's what makes this such a fascinating decision is because you don't yeah. know if teams are going to have the proactive frame of mind to see a guy like that and value him as a first-round pick now or if they're going to make him go back to school and earn that and then potentially not be in a position to pick him a year from now. Super fascinating. 100%. It's a really, really interesting decision there. Um, Phillips is the one of that group that I like the most, I would say. Let's Me talk too. about a few upperclassmen. Kobe Brown, Terrence Shannon, Jalen Clark obviously is dealing with the unfortunate Achilles injury. Yeah. He is still maintaining his eligibility based on all reports. Uh, any of that group, that's kind of like the, you know, sort of, you know, defense ish group of upperclassmen that you can sell them on being potentially better defenders, uh, throughout the course of their NBA career. Yeah. I love Kobe Brown, just unabashedly love Kobe Brown and, and going to be having a, a video on him coming out here in the next 24 hours from recording. So I'm all mm. in on, on Kobe Brown kind of staying in this draft. And I think, Draft stock-wise, he almost has to because he had three really poor three-point shooting years and then an explosion as a senior. Yeah. And I don't think you can go back to school and risk that number falling. Yeah. No, I think he should definitely come out. And I would be surprised if he didn't. I, from, from what I gather from teams, like the feedback is strong enough for him to come out. Uh, like, Good. Frank, uh, I, I'm much closer on him and Andre Jackson than what you are. I think Andre Jackson's just feel is like insane. And when you mix it with the athleticism, it's real NBA teams are not like that. Like NBA teams are with you. Um, They would much rather not everybody, but the consensus is that Kobe Brown is higher than Andre Jackson. And he's maybe the way to put it. He's got real feel too. It just, it manifests itself. It manifests itself in a very different way 
but he's got real feel. Awesome transition passer, like great reads off of the pick and pop. Very good at one bounce and make his decision of where he's going to go. Was a proactive passer out of the post early in the season when Missouri played him there a lot. Like he's really smart in functional ways. Uh, I just I see a player like that popping within it's, a winning scheme. It's so interesting because I think so much of what he does is functional and so much of what he does like isn't really functional on an NBA court. Like he does a lot of like real weird, like bully ball, like post (laughs) stuff that just like, isn't going to fly. Right. There's just no, like he does like Grant Williams, at Tennessee things. Right. He does. Where it's like, okay, we're going to like post him and he's going to drop step or he's going to like get to this like little, you know, shot, like little hook ish kind of shot. Like there's, he does like a lot of that stuff too, but Kobe Brown also shot 45% from three this season and the shot, like the lower half mechanics of his shot are fucking pristine, man. Like they are perfect, perfect balance, perfect in terms of taking it off the hop, gets himself into a rhythm. Just like ideally the thing that worries me is he has the elbow flare. And he doesn't get the elbow underneath the ball totally. And that's given that he is a 25% three point shooter for three years versus now a 45% spike where he has made genuine real mechanical shifts, but still has that concerning mechanical elbow flare if he doesn't shoot, it gets really hard for him it Does because he is a really smart, intuitive defender and a really smart, intuitive passer. He's one of the most versatile players yeah. in terms of the way that like you can utilize him in this class. He's just kind of slow. Like he is, he's, he's a quick, slow. but he's a quick, he's a quick decision maker and processor. Yeah. Like you don't, you don't draft Kobe Brown to be the guy that gets continual rim pressure. And because he can bully ball guys and like half spin his way to the rim from 18 feet, you draft Kobe Brown because you buy in his jump shot. You think that he can guard different positions on the defensive yeah. end of the floor because he's big and physical. And because when he is run off the line, he can take one dribble and just make the right play. That's why you get Kobe Brown. Yeah. And he look, shot look. he shot with such confidence this year, man. Like I know there's smaller mechanical things that he's got to clean up here. Like the way that if a man's hand was down near him and he just he rose up and shot yeah. that thing, like you don't see that from guys who question their mechanics and who aren't going to be great shooters at the next level. You just don't see it. 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 Yeah, and let me be clear. Like, I have Kobe Brown, like, you know, somewhere in the 35-ish to 40-ish range, right? Like, I'm not out on Kobe Brown. Like, I'm I'm definitely pretty interested. The fact that his hips aren't great mixed with the fact that, like, his feet aren't super, like, his feet are fluid, but they're not, like, he doesn't have a ton of burst. They're heavy. Yeah, he has very heavy feet. Again, if he doesn't shoot, this could like go quite poorly, I think. Um, but if he shoots it, like he's really interesting as like, frankly, I like I was texting you last night. We talked about this because I happened to just write the Kobe Brown like draft guide profile as well. And I think that 
there is some real potential for him to play like small ball five. Yes. In some lineups, like kind of like a Grant Williams, small ball five. But what I'm going to be most interested to find out if Grant Williams doesn't go back to Boston, how does a Grant Williams look outside of Boston yeah. where they wanted to be creative in terms of how they utilized him? Look, if he's anything like Grant Williams, he's a hundred percent worth taking in the first round. I think Grant was a faster processor than he is, even though Kobe is a good processor. I think Grant was just like extremely high level at mm-hmm. it. Um, yeah, look, I'm I'm going to be high on Kobe, like high-ish on Kobe yeah. Brown compared to where he was two months ago or whatever. And I, I like I I think I was the first person to have him like in the top sixty in the public sphere. Like I had him there in like late January, early yeah. February. It's just that the shooting jump guys always really worry me. They do. Even though he has made real mechanical shifts, the big shooting spike guys just always worry me that little bit. Yeah, and it it was the perfect season for him at Missouri where everything seems to fall in place, both with his success and the team's success. And you wonder how much of that he's going to be able to replicate in a smaller or different role. Like I think part of the reason he shot so well is because he had the ultimate green light and the long leash to take many of them a game. That may change and disappear when he's your fifth option on the court instead of your first. But I buy so much of the intangibles, the feel – the, the physical ability that he has at his size to just move and, and understand where to be from a help defensive standpoint. And I buy the confidence he has in his own shot. I'm very yep. much in on Kobe Brown as having a first round grade. Yeah. And I'm like, not that far off of it, I guess, as we're talking about it, it's just, I'm like the, the big shooting spike guys always concern me in like a real tangible way. Um, Terrence Shannon, any thoughts? Like he's a guy that we were excited about early in the season. It just kind of tapered off a little bit. It felt like, uh, yeah, I mean, look, he's a little bit older. Like I, I think there's a case for him to make either decision here. Cause Illinois, I would imagine can really take care of him on the NIL market being like a well-established big 10 program. I think he'd probably, uh, I don't have certainty he'd get a guaranteed contract, but I think he'd, probably get one i don't know i i've never been it's really close high. i've never been really high on shannon so it's it's yeah. i'm probably the wrong guy to ask on this like I, I don't think i've finished a draft cycle where i would have had him in the top 60 yet so oh wow you don't even have him in the top 60 yeah i don't think so yeah i mean functional athlete can handle the ball He's a little quick bit, as hell. shifty yep. through his hips like works defensively at the very least like I, i'm I'm a little sure. bit more intrigued than sure. you are, I think, on him. Sure. Uh, but look, I, I, I have him outside of my top 40. I do have him below like the Kobe Brown level now. Yep. Um, Adem Bona is a really interesting one. You know, obviously one of your favorites. I just keep sliding him down. It's kind of the thing. Like he's in the 40s for me. And I think that it makes a lot of sense for him to go back to UCLA. I think it makes some sense for him if he wants to be on a two-way or, you know, potentially get a guarantee. Uh, he's one where if I was him and his people, I would need like assurances now, or I would send him back. I think that sounds, I think that sounds right for a lot of these guys. Like uh, Bona, it's just, it's tough because he didn't measure so well. Like it feels like the last taste of him that we have. Is, I don't know how real that is. Like, but uh, I don't. So, it's, so it's here's trending the thing. Negative. 
Here, here's what I will say on a Dem Bonos like measurements. I am really, really interested to know if that is a typo in terms of his wingspan. Because he came in, either the standing reach or the wingspan is a typo. One of the two can't be right. Because he came in at six foot eight with a seven foot wingspan and has a nine foot two standing reach. The guys that come in six foot eight, seven foot wingspan, they tend to be more in like the eight foot 10, eight foot 11 standing reach zone for the most part. Like Azolas Tabellis, uh, six nine with a six eleven wingspan, nine foot standing reach. Taylor Hendricks, six foot eight, two five. Seven foot and a half wingspan, eight eleven standing reach. Um, Leonard Miller, six nine, seven two wingspan, eight ten and a half standing reach. You know, uh, Grant Nelson, six ten, seven foot wingspan, eight ten and a half standing reach. Trace Jackson Davis, six two, six foot eight, two five, seven foot one wingspan, eight foot ten standing reach. Something has to be off there. It's either I don't know which one it is. Yeah. It's either the standing reach or the wingspan, but it has to be one of the two because that, that is, that number is such an outlier that I think it actually can't be real. Now you're talking my language because like I, I'm looking for ways to continue to be in on Bona because I love the motor and the energy. And I think the NBA is trending more towards bigs that have to play at the level on, on the defensive end of the floor. He's one of the best at it in this class. So like I, I, I want to continue to buy into Bona. It, this has been a, a really strange few months just because he's been injured in different regards and, uh, you know, the measurement thing that has come out and, and potentially might be a typo. There's, I just don't know what to do with him right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, o- Omari Moore's is like also very clearly a typo on there as part of the other reason that I think this is possible. So Omari Moore, if you look at the NBA draft combine site is six foot five without shoes, six foot 10 wingspan and has a nine foot one standing reach. That's just like inaccurate. There's like not another way to put it. It's just completely inaccurate. So yeah, no, it's like totally not possible. So there is something up there with the measurement and I would like to know what it is. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Conspiracy Sam is back. Conspiracy spam. Sam is back. That's right. Okay. Trey Alexander and Arthur Kaluma, two interesting decisions coming up. I think Kaluma like definitely should go somewhere else. Like go, go to, um, you know, look, you know, make your own decision, obviously, and do what you want to do. But like, I think he's someone with his athletic tools that could actually help himself next year by finding a scheme that could be interesting. Having said that, like he just came from Creighton, which is one of the best offensive schemes in the country. So not ideal. Alexander's interesting. I think he could help himself by going back. I think he could also like get a guarantee. It's again, he's a guy though, that I think has enough upside for next season where I would hope he has a guarantee if he decides to go. Sam, you remember rule 93 of the Game Theory podcast. Which one is it? Don't bite on the Arthur Kaluma pump fake. It's true. I forgot about that. That's rule 93. Can't yeah. Do it. yeah, he needs a little more um, in his back. Yeah, totally. The last guy I'll bring up here is Chris Livingston. Yeah. 
Chris Livingston is not getting a guaranteed contract if he comes through to the NBA. Like, it's just not happening. I, I don't know what's going on there. I think he needs... He is one that I think has enough upside to where it would be beneficial for him to go back to school and go back to Kentucky. Like uh, that that's one that I just can't I, I don't have him in the top 70 right now. Yeah. I, on my board. Me either. Like he's yeah. he is a total project that also like needs some work on the shot and like doesn't have like immense physical tools either. I'm just very confused about the way his process has been handled, I guess, maybe a little bit. And I don't really understand why, why, why it happened this way, maybe, sure. is, is the best way to put it. it, it it's just, just a very strange, strange situation to me, I guess. Sure. I got one more for you, Sam, that I'm interested in here because he's been a fan favorite of mine for a long time. Judah Mintz, what do we think? Um, based off the feedback I've gotten, I don't think he would get a guarantee this year. It's not impossible that like they have found a team that would go for it, but the consensus seems to be that it would be harder for him to find a guarantee at this stage. Sure. Um, he would have a month to try and work himself into that range for a team that he goes in and works out for. But I think he would be on a two-way if he decides to go. Yeah, that, I mean, it sounds like two-way in G League is going to be in his future regardless, just whether it's, a, you know, he can get more security and, and promise from a team of a of guaranteed contract. I, I have no idea what to do with him because I love his game and I think that it pops a lot more in college but I don't know. Yeah. You, you really like him quite a bit more than I do. I, I love, I love the way that he just moves out there. Like he is shifty and has these off balance movement patterns that are really hard for defenses to predict. Like there's, there's to me a huge benefit for him of going and just guarding in a man to man scheme for a year. Cause I think he's a really mm-hmm. good point of attack defender gets through screens really well, quick hands, decent length. Like, he is tailor-made to be a really good one who guards in, in man-to-man and pick-and-roll schemes defensively. Yeah. I just – I don't know. I don't know what to do with him because I, I love him and I know I'm irrationally high in that regard, but I don't know what the best next move for him is, right? Is it go back to college? Is it go back to a different school? Is it go to the G League now and just – roll the dice because next year you're going to be, if, if you stay in this draft, you're going to be in the G league, no matter what, just make the most of whatever situation that is play for your next contract. Last group here that I do want to mention, uh, Grant Nelson, Ryan Kalkbrenner, Zach Eady, and Cliff Omarugi. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know. Well, I don't know what to do. I think it just like depends on what those guys want from their career at this point. Edie, I, I would imagine, has like significant financial incentive to return unless he gets like I can't imagine him going through with the draft unless he gets like a straight like promise that is we are going to take you here and give you a fully guaranteed deal. There's no, there's no way that Purdue hasn't come up with more than a 
two-way contract for him on the NIL market, I would think. I think for big men, you can become the face of your team in college basketball in the way that you just cannot once you leave that game. So go secure the NIL bag and play as a focal point. Develop a couple skills that you might need for the NBA a little bit more. Like it, Bigs tend to play by a little bit different of a skill set. Yeah, and I'll, th- I'll throw Coleman Hawkins into this as well, I guess, sure. with this group. Um, I think Grant Nelson like should definitely go to like a high major school next year. Uh, didn't play well at the combine. Like you know, the, the feedback has not been particularly positive on him. Uh, you, you and I have never been wildly high on the Grant Nelson hype train. Um, we never totally really got it. Uh, Ryan Kalkbrenner unfortunately got stuck on this like terrible like team at the combine and it felt like he was just surrounded by like chuckers kind of a lot of the time and yeah i feel like he could help himself by going back and like becoming you know another defensive player of the year in the big east and everything yeah i think again for bigs like it's a little bit different you can just be the face of a college program and play a style that suits you a little bit more than you can when you get to the NBA. Yeah, and Coleman Hawkins is in a weird spot too. Yeah. Uh, that one I don't know what to do with. I wasn't overwhelmingly impressed by what he showed at the combine, like some real defensive flashes in the way that we've seen him do it at Illinois, and then some irrational moments where it didn't show like he was aware of what role he's going to be playing at the next level and how to do that well within a combine scrimmage setting. So – I'm very torn on what to do with Coleman Hawkins. Yeah, I agree. Um, that's all I've got, Adam. Do you want to you wanna be done with this thing? I would love to watch Succession at some point tonight uh, because my, fo- my, my phone's already blowing up. I know something is going on or happened here. I just yes. got to sit down and watch it. Yeah, you got to go on airplane mode, Adam. That's the move. <laughs> Adam, tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what's going on in your life. Yeah, Sam, thanks for having me on here. Uh, everybody go follow me on Twitter at TheBoxin1 underscore my YouTube channel, Adam Spinella. I have a lot of videos and uh, different mock drafts or big boards coming out here in the next week or so. A couple more scouting reports as we dive in and then waiting for this early entrant withdrawal decision to pass before we get into some of the more intriguing guys who have been on that bubble. Awesome. Adam. Thank you for coming on. This has been the Game Theory Podcast. Please remember, rate, review, subscribe to everything you can to support the show. I will probably write something later this week about some of the early entry decisions, but for now, I'm really trying to focus in on getting the draft guide copy over to my editors at this point so that they can start working with that thing and editing that thing down so you guys can have it maybe two weeks before the draft would be the hope, something like that, maybe 10 days before the draft. We shall see. But... That's all we've got for today's show. Until next time, we will talk soon.